Amen. You guys may be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here at Holmes Avenue. I want to thank you guys for joining us this morning. I do want to make a note that this is uh, traditionally when we've taken of our tithes and offerings, and uh, we're not doing so because of this thing called COVID. I know you're sick and tired of hearing about it, but by God's grace, we may be moving through this. If you'd like to give, though, you're able to give online at homesavenue.com forward slash give, or you can give to our ushers as you exit when you're leaving. Uh, With that in mind, uh, we're going to continue in the book study of Leviticus. Uh, Today's sermon is titled, Dedicated to Godliness. We're going to be in Leviticus chapter 27, and if you've been reading through this with us, you'll recognize that we are in the last chapter of Leviticus. Some of you are quite happy about that. I know it's been a long few months, but I think it's been a good and rich few months of looking into the book of Leviticus and really seeing what it is God's intent for holiness and his people. What does it mean for us to be a holy people? And today, particularly, we're going to see in the concluding chapter of Leviticus, God's specific and intentional plan for holiness and what does it look like for us to live that out on a day-to-day basis. Now, with that in mind, as we begin here looking at Leviticus chapter 27, it can seem like an odd place to end the book. Uh, This entire chapter is God speaking about vows and, and what this looks like in their worship system within the nation of Israel. You know, we just finished chapter 26, and we've been looking at all the blessings and curses regarding Israel's covenant with God. And surely you look at chapter 26, and you think, this is the type of place we want to end, right? We've just talked about the celebration of God's blessings for the nation of Israel, all the good that he's going to do, all the great things that are going to happen, and then some penalties for what will occur if you don't do this. And surely that's the last thing you want to have in people's minds. You want to end here so that everyone walks away going, God will bless us if we're faithful, and he'll punish us if we're not. Yet, God continues to speak to his people regarding vows in particular. Now, it seems strange again to look at this chapter and think, this is where we're ending, this entire book Leviticus, this is where we're going to go. Well, Kenneth Matthews, a scholar that Brian and I have quoted uh, heavily throughout this series, writes that this is because the entire book of Leviticus has been concerned with the promises that God made to his people if they would live up to the obligations they had sworn to keep. You see, God is addressing the vows that we would make to him and to others because he is a promise keeper. He has been throughout the entire book addressing, here is what I promise as your holy God I will do for my people. Here's what I promise I will do for the holy nation of Israel. And throughout this book, we recognize that if indeed we believe that God is always faithful to keep his vows, then we have to address how we're going to be doing and fulfilling our vows. How we're going to live in such a way that will bring honor and glory to his name. You see, like much of the book we've seen at this point, God is addressing what holy people should do. You see, God is addressing what holy people should do. Yet, as we look at this, he's recognizing the reality that we're sinful people who have been redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus, yet we are not perfect. We've not received that perfection that will come in the new heavens and the new earth. And so we have to recognize that God is taking time to address our faithlessness in light of his faithfulness. 
And so as we look at this chapter, that is the framework we have to approach it, recognizing that God is trying to continue to explain. And what he's ending on in this chapter is that this is what holy people do. This is how they live. So as we begin, we're going to be looking at the first eight verses. And your first point is that we're looking at dedication of a life. Look with me at the first eight verses. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, If anyone makes a special vow to the Lord involving valuation of a person's, then the valuation of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old shall be 50 shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If the person is a female, the valuation should be 30 shekels. If the person is from 5 years old up to 20 years old, the valuation shall be for a male 20 shekels and for a female 10 shekels. If the person is from a month old up to 5 years old, the valuation shall be for a male 5 shekels of silver, and for a female the valuation shall be 3 shekels of silver. And if the person is 60 years old or over, then the valuation for a male shall be 15 shekels, and for a female 10 shekels. And if someone is too poor to pay the valuation... Then he, then he shall be made to stand before the priest, and the priest shall value him. The priest shall value him according to what the vower can afford. So right here, as we look at this idea of a dedication of a life, we've got to address what's happening here. You see, God is speaking to Moses, and he's addressing the highest commitment that one can make before the Lord. That is dedicating a human life to him. Now, what that means is they are saying they're taking a vow, a covenant together that I'm going to give of myself to the Lord, that I will serve him and live in his service for the rest of my days. We as Christians do something very similar by placing our life in the hands of Jesus through repentance and belief leading to salvation. We do something very similar here. And ultimately, this dedication revolves around people dedicating their lives to serving the Lord. Now, we have to be careful here because they're not talking about giving their lives to the priesthood and they're becoming a part of the priests and the Levites. That we do see that happen in Scripture with Samuel, for instance, in 1 Samuel. You see, this is centered around service to the Lord alongside the priesthood. You see, often these men and women would do things like working with sacrificial animals or even assisting in the tabernacle, perhaps transporting it for the priests. They're heavily involved in this sense as servants, but they are not the priest. Regardless of what they're doing within the confines of this worship environment, these are people who value the Lord's work so much that they'll literally give their lives to see Him exalted. They will literally give their lives in service to the Lord so that He could be exalted and glorified. Church, I hope you see that this is how we are to approach our lives and efforts before the Lord. We are called to give of ourselves to the work of God's kingdom. It has been said that our lives are simply a blank check that we put before the Lord. We filled out everything but what it's for. And we say, God, my life is yours. Whatever you'll have of me, whatever you'll do with me, whatever you will send me, I am yours. And that is precisely what these people are doing. They're saying, God, I am yours. Do what you will with me and my life. 
I think it's important to note as we look at this is that there's no specific skills or qualifications that are called here, right? That it just simply says, if you're going to dedicate your life to the Lord, here's how it's valued. And what this is telling us is that no matter your skills or your physical ability, we are called to faithfully serve the Lord in whatever manner we can. We are called to faithfully serve the Lord in whatever manner we can. So it does not matter what skills and abilities you have. It does not matter about your physical capabilities. What matters is that your heart is in a position that you want to serve the Lord and you do what you are capable of doing. Now, as we look at this, we have this idea of monetary values that have been put in there, right? There's some type of valuation that's been provided. So what's that about? What's happening here? You see, these seem to have been assigned to people based on their capacity to do physical work. That as we look at this, we're seeing that, that some of these people, specifically males of a certain age, are valued higher than the ladies. That is not a commentary on the value of men and women, but as simply a recognition of who is going to provide more work during this peak time of their life. And typically, men are going to provide more physical labor in this era. And so men are valued more because they'll be contributing more to the physical labor of the tabernacle. Yet we recognize that this isn't providing a set value for these people. This is simply, just as any employer would do, measuring what they are worth to the company. Just as your job says, I will pay you X per hour to work, this is that evaluation. This is that metric of saying they are worth X to us in terms of labor and contribution. Now, this doesn't mean a whole lot in terms of general valuation, but this is actually rooted in this idea of redeeming. We're going to see this later on in the passages as this idea of redemption is brought forth. Now, what we see here is that essentially, if you dedicate your life or if your child dedicates their life to the Lord, and one day you recognize that they made that hastily, or perhaps you've said that I need to do this to serve my family, whatever it may be, you have the ability to essentially buy back this person's vow. You get to go forth to the priest and say, my son is 20 years old, so he is worth X number of shekels to you in terms of his service. I will give that to you so you'll release him from his vow, so you are compensated. The Lord has been compensated and has his, what is his worth, and my son can go and do this service for the Lord elsewhere. Now, it, again, it seems like an odd, unusual thing here, but you may recognize some very similar language that we see throughout this idea of redemption. As we talk about things in redemption, this is one of the Old Testament roots of this idea of redemption we speak about today as we talk about Christ and the church. This idea is actually closely related to the idea of the kinsman redeemer that we see in the book of Ruth. If you remember, we went through that a few years ago. That idea of this kinsman redeemer being present, that when there is a time of lack, when there is time of a family that is suffering, that someone from the family, a close relative, is to step forward and provide for the family. They're to care for the family. That we see this idea of redemption being built forth. That in a sense, we see the early threads of the redemption of Christ and the church coming forth from this very passage. Now, I want to note just the reality that this valuation we see is, is, seems to be reflective upon gender and age. That it, it, it seems that at different stages of life, there's some different valuations. In fact, we even see that it says that older women are more valuable than older men, as an example of this, despite the fact that young men are valued more early on. 
What we see ultimately is that all people are valued by God and they're open to dedicate their lives to a service at any time in their life. You see, the reason that God creates that stipulation for older people is that he recognizes that people will come to a redeeming experience with God and say, I want to give what is left of my life to the Lord. Some will do this earlier, some will do this later, but God is creating an evaluation system to show I've left no one out. Everyone is valuable in my sight. Everyone has a role that they can play in the life of my nation. Now, as we look at this, we even see in verse 8 that he provides this idea of a priestly valuation. You see, what verse 8 is getting at is that it's saying that there are some people within the nation of Israel who are too poor to even afford these baseline valuations. We see as we look at the scriptures, as we look at historical evidence that a shekel is worth about one month's wages. About one month's wages is what a shekel is. Now, for some people, that is even too much they can afford. Yet, they come to the Lord and say, I want to serve the Lord. I want to give of my life to Him. I want to faithfully be a part of this family and care for His people. Well, even though they're too poor to perhaps even afford the cost of service, God provides a way for them to serve based upon what they have. You see, again, what we're getting to is that God values all people. He values His people. And that even those who would perhaps be too poor to even afford these costs, he would say, there is a way for you to serve and to be faithful to your calling. There is a way for you to make a difference. And that way is ultimately going to be that I'm going to bear the weight of this price for you. And that I'm going to allow you to come into this family and serve. Can you see the threads that we're running towards the cross? That as we look at the Old Testament here, particularly in these verses, we're seeing the beginnings of that tapestry being woven that leads us with a scarlet trail straight through the cross. We're seeing the very beginning stages of this language being developed of redemption and the coming of Christ. We're seeing that God values His people so much that He would send someone to provide reconciliation for them. Now, as we look at these verses, we have to recognize that we're talking about this idea of dedicating a life, that this is a a very costly thing to do, yet there are other ways that we can choose to worship the Lord. There are other ways that we can give generously to the Lord in response to the gratitude that He has shown us. You see, in the next few verses, God is addressing this idea of vows, specifically the dedicating of possessions. Look with me at verse 9. If the vow is an animal that may be offered as an offering to the Lord, all of it that he gives to the Lord is holy. He shall not exchange it or make a substitute for it, good for bad or bad for good. And if he does, in fact, substitute one animal for another, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. And if it is any unclean animal that may not be offered as an offering to the Lord, then he shall stand the animal before the priest, and the priest shall value it as either good or bad. As the priest values it, so it shall be. But if he wishes to redeem it, he shall add a fifth to the valuation. When a man dedicates his house as a holy gift to the Lord, the priest shall value it as either good or bad. As the priest values it, so shall stand. If the donor wishes to redeem his house, he shall add a fifth to the valuation price, and it shall be his. If a man dedicates to the Lord part of the land that is in his possession, then the valuation shall be in proportion to its seed. 
A homer of barley seed shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. If he dedicates his field from the year Jubilee, the valuation shall stand. But if he dedicates his field after the Jubilee, then the priest shall calculate the price according to the years that remain until the year of Jubilee, and a deduction shall be made from the valuation. And if he who dedicates the field wishes to redeem it, then he shall add a fifth of its valuation price, and it shall remain his. But if he does not wish to redeem the field, or if he has sold the field to another man, it shall not be redeemed anymore. But the field, when it is released in the Jubilee, shall be a holy gift to the Lord, like a field that has been devoted. The priest shall be in possession of it. And if he dedicates to the Lord a field that he has bought, which is not part of his own possession, then the priest shall calculate the amount of valuation for it up to the year of Jubilee, and the man shall give the valuation on that day as a holy gift to the Lord. In the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to him from whom it was bought, to whom the land belongs as a possession. Every valuation shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Twenty gerhas shall make a shekel. Now, as we look at this section, here we really see people responding to God's generosity by giving of their possessions. We see all that laid out, that they are responding in gratitude and thanksgiving to the Lord by saying, Father, you have blessed me. You have given richly and generously to me. I have more than I need. I have in abundance, perhaps. Lord, would you take this and do something with it? You see, we often see this expressed in our modern culture with various organizations like Goodwill and other groups. You see, we can give things like cars, houses, etc. to these organizations, and they're going to take these items and sell them or just use them for money for operating the charity. That these things are given as an in-kind offering, so to speak. And that's what we see being displayed here, that the people are saying, God has been generous to me, and I want to bless him. I take this vow and give these things to him to display my love and gratitude for him. Now, we have two different sections we see here. We see one addressing things like animals, and then we another see, uh, see a section addressing houses and land. You know, they, this is really kind of the common uh, width of possessions for people. This is what had value in their time. For us, it might be things like cars and our home and maybe what phone you have. I don't know, but there would be some different types of options for us. But in this time, animals, houses, land. So the first section is animals, right? And so he spends a few verses talking through that, and that seems to be rather straightforward, right? That if you're going to provide an animal, it must be clean. If you're going to provide an animal that's unclean as a vow to the Lord, you have to bring it before the priest, and the priest has to say it's worth X, and then you pay that amount. You offer that amount. You give that amount along with the animal. Now, I know you're hearing clean and unclean, and you've probably forgotten all the way back in chapter 11 where we talked about clean and unclean, right? It's been a few months since then, so let me cut you a break and let me explain what that is. Essentially, unclean animals do not qualify for an offering on the altar for various reasons. These are things like blemishes, deformity, etc. So unclean animals are not fit for an offering at the altar. Now, this is only important here because this is really the valuation of the animal being framed around this idea of clean or unclean. Yet, even if it's unclean, it still has value and can be used in the service to the Lord, though not through an offering at the altar. You see, even if it's unclean, it has value before the Lord. I want to take a moment and just kind of address the reality here that we see here. 
We can take a, a straight line from this text to the idea of sin and shame. That these creatures who are unclean, for whatever reason, whether it's a blemish or deformity or some sin issue perhaps, whatever it might be, yet they still have value before the Lord. I don't know every person in this room in an intimate way. We're not perhaps best friends. I don't spend time at your house necessarily. But here's what I do know. No matter where you are at in your life, in your journey with Christ, you are not too far from the Lord to redeem you. You are never going to sin so much that the Lord cannot forgive you. In fact, as we study the scriptures, the only sin that God is not going to forgive is that that you would reject him and turn away from his forgiveness. How can God forgive you if you would reject his grace and mercy, right? There is no sin too great. There is no shame too big. There is nothing that can separate you from the arms of Jesus. There is nothing that would stop you from displaying your value before the Lord by repenting and believing. And what we see here is that even these creatures that are unclean, that are not able to be offered on the altar, they still have value and significance before the Lord. They still have meaning before the Lord. And so I don't know if perhaps you're wrestling with that, but what I do know is that we see here explicitly in the text that these unclean animals have value and significance before the Lord. Now, we don't see the, the section in there that he goes and begins to addressing this idea of how do you dedicate things like homes and land. Now, this begins to get a little more complicated, and this is God recognizing human sinfulness, that we are people who are not wise, we are people who are short-sighted, we are people who fail to take in all that we need to into consideration as we make decisions. You see, as we look at this passage, we see that you can offer your home and your land to the service of the Lord. It's rather straightforward if you want to offer your home before the Lord. The priest essentially comes, looks at your house and goes, oh, three bedroom, two and a half bathrooms. That's about 30 shekels. That's good. And you go forward from there. It's a straightforward process. If you want to offer your house to the Lord, here's the valuation. Here's what you need to know. Give it to the Lord and it's for his glory. Now, land, however, becomes something much more complex. This makes sense as we look at the farming culture of Israel and just what the people were living in in the midst of the day. There are many things that have to be considered as they're talking about offering your land to, your, to the Lord. Some of the questions you have to ask is, well, first, who has custody of the land? And you think, well, that's silly, right? You either own it or you don't. Yet what we recognize within the nation of Israel, we addressed this a few chapters earlier, but every few years there would be the year of Jubilee where land is reset and it goes back to the ancestral ownership, the family that owns it. And so even if you sell your land in a few years, you may be able to reacquire that by God resetting the playing field for people. Now, what that means is you have to recognize that, did I buy this land from someone or do I own it outright? Is this my family's land, right? Because that affects the valuation. We also have to ask, how long until the Jubilee? Because for so, so many years, it's going to be ours that we're giving to the Lord. And then when we hit the year Jubilee, it resets and goes back to the original family. Now, knowing that, that affects how many harvests we'll have. That affects how profitable this will be, how much will be given to the Lord from this. And then finally, we have to address the reality that they address here is, what will your land actually yield, right? 
You may not know anything about farming, but you probably know enough to know that a good, rich, fertile soil is probably going to lend more towards growing crops than the middle of the desert, right? That rich, fertile land is going to give you more crops than if you plant a field in the middle of a desert. And so as we look at this, they're addressing these realities of how long will the land be here? Who, does that, who actually owns it? How profitable will it be, right? How many harvests will there actually come from this? Now, all those questions are asked simply to provide a valuation for people. And as we wrestle with this idea of valuation, you've probably been wondering, what's the point of this, right? If they're giving this, why are we assigning values to this? Well, I think that the reason we see values assigned to this is that God is wanting to be careful and considerate to his people. You see, what we recognize is that vows are meant to be taken in a measured, calm way. That far too often, for us as people, we will take time to make a vow in the midst of turmoil and distress. God, I promise you I'll never do this again, right? And then a week later, what are we doing? That same thing that we swore we would never do again. We are fickle people who are trapped in sin and shame. And when we have an opportunity to reject God, we will because we are not perfect. God recognizes that about us, and he's wanting to display that not only are these things costly to begin, but to redeem the possession of person once the vow has been made means that you have to go above and beyond the original cost. What God is trying to make clear is that you don't enter into these vows lightly. That if you do so and you try to cheapen what you've offered before the Lord, you're going to pay a price. We recognize that even as we look at our own sin, right? That we recognize that as we are regenerate believers in Christ, we are Christians who are walking in light of the gospel, that when we sin, Christ offers forgiveness. That we have forgiveness before the Lord for our sin. Yet, nowhere in Scripture does it say that we are protected from the consequences of our sin. You see, sin and disobedience are costly. Some sins will cost us more than others, right? That if I tell you a small lie of, hey, I forgot to bring this today when I really haven't, I just didn't want to give it to you and talk to you, that's one thing. It's another thing if I steal your car. That's a whole different measure of sin and consequences. And this is what God is trying to display to his people. He's addressing these issues because his people, us, we are still sinners, We are going to fail. We are going to make promises and vows with enthusiasm in the moment, but later we'll neglect those vows. You see, it's because of this that God's vows to Christians, to the church in the New Testament, required the death and resurrection of Jesus. You see, someone has to pay for or redeem his chosen people. This is why we're addressing these things, because God is setting the stage for the rest of Scripture saying, redemption is not cheap. It required God himself to come to this earth, to live a perfect life that you and I could not even fathom. To go to the cross, an innocent man, perfect, pure, holy, and righteous, and die a death that you and I deserved. Why? So that he might redeem his chosen people. So that he might say, you who have had your name written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundations of the earth will be mine. 
You see, our sin requires a costly payment. Our disobedient, disobedience brings cost. And so as God is addressing these realities, he is saying that, yes, you can make these vows to give your life to me. You can make these vows to give me your possessions that is good, that is worthy. That is something you should consider doing. Yet, you cannot do so lightly because the consequences are real. The consequences are significant. You truly have to weigh the cost of saying you'll follow me or not. This is what Jesus said when he said, take up your cross and die on a daily basis. This is what he meant, that it's going to require sacrifice. It is going to require suffering. It is going to require difficulty to follow Jesus. And he's saying, measure the cost. Know what it'll take from you. Now, just as Jesus is, the scriptures here are addressing the realities of costliness, there's a real cost to following Jesus. What that requires us to do, as we see displayed here, is that we are to live in a holy way as a holy people serving a holy God. You see, what God is asking for here is that he's asking us to make a dedication of integrity. He's asking us to make a dedication of integrity. Look with me at the remaining verses. But a firstborn of animals, which as a firstborn belongs to the Lord, no man may dedicate, whether ox or sheep, it is the Lord's. And if it is an unclean animal, then he shall buy it back at the valuation and add a fifth to it. Or if it is not redeemed, it shall be sold at the valuation. But no devoted thing that a man devotes to the Lord of anything that he has, whether man or beast or of his inherited field, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. No one devoted who is to be devoted for destruction from mankind shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. One shall not differentiate between good or bad, neither shall he make a substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. You see, God calls us for a dedication of integrity. A few years ago, I heard a pastor offer this illustration of him speaking to his sons as they're preparing to go to the movie theater. And as they're getting ready to go to the theater, his sons are telling him, Dad, we've got to leave a little bit early. We've got to go by the dollar store to go get candy and snacks before we go. We've all done that, right? And he's saying, we've got to go here to get snacks and candy before we go because why would we get it at the movie theater? And the, the man, Chris, looks at his sons and says, so you're telling me that your integrity is worth about $4. And his sons are like, what, what are you talking about, Dad? And he said, you're telling me that you're willing to lie, cheat, and steal over $4. So you said that you're willing to sell everything you have as a man for $4. Do 
Well, that day they didn't go by the dollar store. They went to the movie theater and paid full price. Yet, that illustration has stuck with me for years. Recognizing that what is our integrity worth? What is it that we are willing to sell ourselves for? What is it that we are willing to give our holiness up for before the Lord? Is it worth it for these temporary pleasures of sin and shame? Is it worth it to give up all we have before the Lord so that we can have momentary satisfaction and comfort? The answer is no, yet, despite our sometimes good intentions, we are going to fall short of the standard that God has set. We will not always keep our vows before the Lord. In fact, sometimes, because of who we are as people, we will actively seek to go back on our vows or even try to find some wiggle room to make it less burdensome to us. My children do this all the time, right? Perry, clean your room. Do I have to clean the whole room or just this corner? The whole room, that's what I want. Okay, but do you mean like things have to be put away or they have to be off the floor? The whole room must be clean. There's no negotiating on this. You see, God's addressing some of the ways that we as people might try to dodge these responsibilities. He recognizes that a sinful people that is striving to be holy is not perfect, and they're going to need some guidance on what this actually means. The first thing he addresses is dedicating the firstborn. You see, the law that we see in Exodus chapter 13, verse 2, it requires that all firstborn children and animals be dedicated to the Lord. It requires all firstborn to be dedicated to the Lord. And God's addressing the reality that a sinful people that has lost sight of God on his throne and looked at their own sin and shame as this is worthwhile and valuable might try to do this crazy thing of dedicating their firstborn twice. That they might just try to use this as a way to get out of their vows. And God is saying, let me go ahead and tell you that I am the sovereign king of the universe. I've seen everything from creation to redemption in the blink of an eye. You're not going to get away with something that crazy. You're not going to do something that ridiculous. That your firstborn is dedicated to the Lord, no questions asked. You want to make a vow, you'll give up something else to the Lord. He also has to address the reality of dedicating devoted things. Now, these devoted things is the first time we've seen this throughout the book of Leviticus. These are really just addressing things that are totally restricted and reserved to the Lord's service. This is things like the firstborn we see here, that you're giving these things to the Lord. There's no question asked. This is His. It belongs to Him. Now, with that in mind, the gist here is just simply trying to address the reality that these things are either devoted to God and His service or they're subjected to utter destruction. You see, we actually see this used in the book of Joshua repeatedly as the nation of Israel is coming into the land. And he tells them multiple times they're dealing with the people of, the, of these cities of they are to be devoted to destruction. You're to tear down these walls, destroy these cities, kill the people, kill the livestock, leave nothing here. Why? Because they are subjected to utter destruction. Because they have rejected me and their works. The things they have are blasphemous. And what do we see repeatedly in Joshua? The people of Israel ignore him throughout the book. And what does that do? That brings devastation upon them. 
When they ignore him, they lose battle after battle after battle until someone gets the bright idea of, you know, I think God said we were supposed to do something else. Maybe if we do that, he might bless us again. And what do you know? It's like a magic button. When you do what God says, he blesses you. Finally, they have to address the reality of dedicating tithes. You see, in the Old Testament in particular, people are commanded to offer up a portion of their land's tithe. That any of their produce, their herds, a tenth of that is given to the Lord. We've seen an example of this used earlier in the book of Leviticus. We've seen the first fruits offering and some other things that are occurring in here. But here, God is telling us that tithes are already set. They're set aside as holy, and they cannot be offered again with a vow. He makes a stipulation for certain things in here, like produce or the herds, if you have an animal you need. He's making a stipulation saying, you will not cheapen me, I will get what you are supposed to offer, but if your family needs a cow now, give more produce. If your family needs the produce now, give an extra cow or ox or whatever it may be. You are not going to go without, but you're going to give what is deserved to the Lord. And so he's setting the expectation that what you're going to do is you're going to provide X to the Lord because this is what he has earned. This is what he is asking for. And this is what he deserves. Now as we look at this, it seems perhaps like an unusual end to the book of Leviticus, right? Yet the point of of this section, really I I would say the whole chapter and, and this whole book actually, is that God has called His people to live like Him. He has called His people to live holy like Him. He proclaims it throughout the whole Old Testament. I am the Lord your God. I am holy. You are to be holy. We're to be holy and blameless is the standard. That's what God has asked, that is what He is demanding here, that is what He is laying out for His people. You are to be holy and blameless. You are to live in an upright, worthy manner. Yet, if we're honest with one another, if we're open and honest to ourselves, we recognize that we don't measure up all the time, right? You don't have to raise your hand or shout out an answer, but... Maybe just give me a head nod if you recognize that you're not perfect and that you fall short of the standard that God has set on a continual basis. We sin and we fall short of God's grace all the time. Perhaps more than we would dare to admit, we fall short of God's grace. And yet we're aware of this in both big and small ways. We see the big things where we blow up on our family. We see the big things where we're short and rude with people because we're having a bad day. Yet we also don't display the smaller things where you think unkind thoughts. Where you're angry with someone and you don't repent of it. Where you come before the Lord and you haven't confessed your sin and shame to Him in who knows how long. So how, if we are people who commit these sins, if we're imperfect, failing people, how? How can we be found holy and blameless before the Lord? How is it that we can be found upright and righteous like the Lord expects? Well, I heard a beautiful illustration about this this past week that 
I just thought fit so perfectly. It's from Alistair Begg. I hope you listen to some of his sermons. I encourage you to. But he's speaking about the man on the cross, the thief on the cross. And he says this thief on the cross has entered into heaven and he's standing before an angel. And this angel says to him, well, sir, why, how are you here? Why are you here? And this thief on the cross says, I don't know. I, what do you mean you don't know? How did you get here? I haven't a clue, but I'm here. What do we do? And so the angel, as rightfully so, says, I perhaps need to get my supervisor. Let me go get someone who's an adult to deal with this. And in this story, the supervisor comes over and says, Well, sir, how are you here? And the thief says, I don't know. And the angel first says, Well, tell me about your, your doctrine of justification. Tell me about the things you believe. How are you justified? And the man says, I haven't a clue. I just got here. He says, well, let's try an easier one, right? Surely you know something about the doctrine of Scripture, right? No, what is that? I've never even read a verse. He says, well, sir, what do you know? And the man says, I don't know anything. Then the angel looks at him and goes, well, how are you here? And the thief says, I am here because that man on the middle cross said I could come. That man on the middle cross said, today you will be with me in heaven. And I am here by no work of my own, by nothing I've done, but the shed blood of that man on the middle cross. And that man's name is Jesus. You see, if any part of our justification begins with I did, I believed, I earned, I served, I, if it's anything in the first person, we have gotten it wrong. Our justification is rooted in, is existing only on Jesus alone and His shed blood and righteousness. So if you're here and you're saying, I don't know how to be holy and blameless, I don't know how to be upright and righteous, you're right, you don't. But there is one who can make you upright and righteous. There is one who can make you holy and blameless, and His name is Jesus. There is one who can save, one alone who can provide redemption. And I will assure you that His blood will never lose its power. His name will never cease to save. And His name is Jesus. And today, that name has been proclaimed over you. And perhaps this is the first time you have heard the name of Jesus in light of the gospel. And let me assure you that today is a beautiful day to experience redemption and salvation. Today is a day that the free gift of grace has been offered to you. And it is none, by none other than the shed blood of Jesus Christ that you can enter into the family of God. That today perhaps you're here and you've never looked at Jesus in this way before. Well, today is the day you can repent. Perhaps you're here and you've been a believer for 20 years. Today is a beautiful day to repent and trust in the grace of Christ yet again. That if you're here and you want to repent, today is the day you can come forward and speak to myself or Pastor Brian. You can confess your sins with us and we will pray to the Lord God Almighty for your salvation today. There is one prayer that we see throughout Scripture that God assures us that He will answer. And that is the prayer of salvation. And His answer to that prayer is always yes and amen. So today is the day for you to receive this free gift of grace that comes from God. If you're here in person, come speak to me. 
We'll pray over you. We'll pray for God's blessing upon you. We'll pray for you to repent and believe in the name of Jesus today. If you're online, you can go to homesavenue.com forward slash contact. Let us know what God's doing in your life. Let us know what He's doing in your life so that we can pray with you. But today we have an opportunity to confess our sin before the Lord and cry out to Him. We're going to do that here. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer where you as an individual will go before the Lord and ask Him to move in your life. That if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus, the only thing I'm concerned about you saying before the Lord is, Father, I've sinned, what do I do? That if you're here and a believer, the only thing I'm concerned about you saying before the Lord is, Father, I've sinned, forgive me again. So in this time of silent prayer, you have opportunity to go before the Lord. And I'll pray for us for a few moments, and after that, our worship team will come forward and lead us in a final song of worship as we cry out a perfect song, Here's My Heart, Lord. That today is the day that we can cry out to the Lord, Here's my heart, Lord. Everything I've got, here's my life. It's yours and yours alone. Do with it what you will. So if you would, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, we are thankful for your grace. Even as we fail to recognize how costly the debt that we owed was, we have to acknowledge that you are a God who gives above and beyond any normal measure. You tell us in Scripture that even if sinful men would give good gifts, how much more will your Heavenly Father give? And Father, we trust that you are giving abundantly to us. Father, there is much that you provide for us, much that you give, and today we are concerned about one gift and one gift only. Lord, that is the free gift of grace that comes to all who proclaim the name of Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Today, as we finish 27 chapters of Leviticus, the whole point of this book is that you're a holy God who desires a holy people. Yet we struggle with this idea of how can sinful people be holy. The only way we can be holy is by repenting and believing in Jesus Christ. By looking upon that blood-stained cross and proclaiming, my God died on this cross and rose again three days later so that I might have forgiveness and life eternal. So Lord, I pray that our answer today of how we can be found righteous, how we can be found upright, holy, and blameless 
is that we would simply, as the thief on the cross perhaps did, point back to the cross and say, I am clean, I am justified, I am upright, holy, righteous, blameless because of the man on the middle cross. That I've been found righteous and redeemed because of the finished work of Jesus. So, Father, today, if there is anyone here under the sound of my voice, whether in person or online, that has not repented of their sin, I pray that you convict them of their sin. That they recognize that they have sinned and fallen short of the standard that you have set, Lord, the standard of holiness. That they confess their sin to you, they repent of it, they turn away, and they trust in you as their Lord and Savior. Father, I pray today that you move in a mighty way amongst your people. Convict us of our sin, lead us to repentance, and let us sing a song of praise and celebration because we have been made righteous before a holy, loving God. Father, we are so grateful for all that you've done for us. And we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.